if you, uh, if you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and find your way to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 15 this morning. And uh, if you have uh, been, been here the last couple of months, or maybe you haven't, you play a little catch up. We are actually in a series and a season in the life of our church called Resurgence. And Resurgence is about revisiting the past through the book of Acts to take hold of the future, which means going back to what the church originally was meant to be 2,000 years ago, and then asking the question, what does that look like for us to reflect that today in our current context? And as well, part of that is our digesting of that in our community groups and then living that out in the way that we engage people who have yet to come to know Jesus. But this morning, we're, we're going to look at a passage that is kind of a, the continuation. In fact, this message, last week, this week, and then actually it won't be until January because we'll take a break in December from Resurgence and we'll focus in on, on Christmas. But it's this, this, the focal point of the story is a guy named Stephen. And if you weren't here last week, we understand that Stephen was one of these seven people that they appointed to help take care of the, the distribution of food for widows who needed that resource. And so out of that, now Stephen kind of comes the centerpiece of this, the next couple chapters about what God's doing in his life. And so in this particular passage, what we're going to see is that, that Stephen has experienced the, what we would call being empowered or filled, the fullness of the Spirit in his life. And the result is, is amazing. But he comes in contact with a group of people who are resistant to what is happening in him and through him. And they represent kind of the opposite of what Stephen represents. Stephen re represents a life that is lived out with God's presence through his spirit. While these group of people that he's going to encounter represent the opposite. They, they represent, even though it, we usually will use this as a term to describe different faiths, it's the term religion. He encounters a group of religious people who are pushing back on what is happening in Stephen's life. And so this morning, we're going to talk about religion versus spirit. And religion, sometimes, if, if you're not familiar, if you're coming from outside the church, you're like, oh yeah, religion, that's Islam, that's Buddhism, that's Hinduism, that's Christianity, that's Judaism. Those are titles that we use the term religion. But when we're referring to religion, what religion really is, it's a system of beliefs and a system of practices that are really put in place, if we're honest with ourselves, put in place by our own humanity to understand, define, and in a sense, contain God. And if you realize the reason we do that is because we like things well-defined. We like boxes, and we like checklists, and we like to make sure that if we don't understand something, we want to understand it because in understanding, we feel like we have a sense of control. And whether you and I know it or not, religion is a, a man-made reality for us to kind of do that to God so that we feel like, okay, I can get my brain around who God is. The problem is, is that God is constantly challenging and pushing back on the box that we put him in because he's God and God is not defined by a system. God is defined by a person and it's hard to really define a person by a system. So let me, let me give you in this, this context what we have a tendency to do. So um, when I was growing up, we had cats. God set me free and delivered me from cats. So I became a dog person. Any dog people out there? Okay. If you're a cat person, we'll pray for you. Okay. But when, when, when the kids were young, we were up in Oregon, we got a dog, and um, when we got the dog, we obviously understood the thing that I tell you all the time about Oregon. If you haven't been there, it's true. It rains all the time. And so we wanted a dog that obviously the dog was going to be an indoor and outdoor dog, but that meant when the dog came in, in came the mud and all the debris that would come in with rain and all that stuff. So how do we keep that contained? Because we're relatively neat freaks in our house, and so we're thinking, how do we do this? And then we were at some friend's house one time. We were there for a number of hours, and uh, they had a big dog. I don't know what kind of dog it was. It's probably like 100 pounds, big dog. And they had lots of acreage, and so the dog would run and everything, and then they opened their sliding glass door, and here comes this big dog, and it comes in really kind of calmly and tiptoes over to this big mat and lays on it. 
I was like, okay. And so at first I thought, well, that's cute. That dog will be over here in five minutes. And we were there for hours and hours and hours, and that dog never moved once. Not once. It stayed there the whole time. And then by the end of our, our time there, I'm like, okay, you got to tell me. What, how did you do that? Is there like a shock collar underneath the dog's skin that if it gets off the mat, it gets shot? Like, no, just from birth, when we got the dog, we trained that when the dog comes in the house, she knows she goes on that mat, and that's where she goes unless we tell her otherwise. And, like, and it works. They're like, it works. I'm like, that's what we're doing with our dog. And we did. Her name was Bella, and we trained her when she came in that there was this little mat right by the sliding glass door, and she would come in, and she would sit on it. That was her place. And, and she knew it. In fact, people would come over and didn't even know we had a dog if they were in our living room because she was in the family room. And, but every once in a while, we would let her get off her mat. We would call her, and of course, she was so excited. She'd come running into the living room. And then the moment we would want her out of, the, out of our space, we'd say, Bella, go on your mat. And then her ears would drop, and she was like, you know, she'd kind of go back, and she'd go on her mat. But people were like, wow, that's amazing. Like, yeah, we have control over our dog. And there was a sense of pride. I'll just be honest. Like, yeah, we know what we're doing. Like, Right? You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? But you know what's tragic is we do the same thing with God. That's what religion does. It keeps God domesticated. It says, here's the parameters in which you can function. Every once in a while, we'll let you off the mat. But I want to know and understand everything about who you are. And every once in a while, you, you, the phrase that we used for our dog was, go back to your mat or go on, go on your mat. I think religion constantly says that to God. God, here's your mat. Here's your, your checklist. Here's your box so I can understand you. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today is that there's a group of people that comes with a box for God to fit into and then there's God by his spirit comes and blows right past that box and that def definition of religion to a life of freedom and power and God's presence that is way beyond anything that religion can produce in our lives. So with that understanding this morning, if you have your Bibles, let me read. I'm going to start in verse 8. We'll go down to verse 15 in Acts 6. So going on in this story, it says, In Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it is called, and of the uh, Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those uh, from Sicilia and uh, Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the, with the spirit, the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceased to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will deploy, destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So when I stop with this, there's, there's two main characters, two main groups. There's Stephen and then there's the freedmen. And there's this comparison to their approach to God and they're completely opposite. I want to start with this group of people called the freedmen. What is it? How do they define religion? What is a religion, religion actually about? That's what we see in this. So look at verse nine. The first thing that religion is about for us and it was for them is resisting change. So verse 9, it goes through and says this is a group of people called, they were part of the synagogue called the freedmen. What is going on there? So these are people from, from different areas who were Jewish but were Roman slaves. And they were enslaved to the point where they weren't allowed to practice their Judaism as they would have, as if they were free. And somehow they found their freedom, and as a result of that, they were finding their way back into Judaism. And so they founded a synagogue that was kind of made up of former Roman slaves. Now, when you can't do something that's valuable to you for a very long time and you get really interested in that, you become more 
firm in your beliefs and your practices. So this is a group of very like passionate, very committed Jews that anything that didn't look like Judaism to them became an, an immediate threat. So Stephen shows up and he's experiencing God's power and he's not doing the things that they think that he should be doing. And because of that, they see the change that is happening in him as a threat to their religion, to their faith. And here's the question for us today. When, when you think about change in your life, especially when it comes to how you understand God, when change happens, how do you see it? Do you see it as an opportunity or do you see it as a threat to the status quo? Whether you know it or not, some of, I know a lot of us will say, oh, I love change. I love things to change all the time. But there's certain things that you don't, and I don't like to change. We like to get an idea of the way God works, and we want to hold it that, in that place, and we never want it to change. It's not that God changes or he somehow has different personalities. It's that God, in our, in our understanding of God, our understanding is constantly evolving. Because you can't contain all of who God is, but you day by day you're learning more about who he is, his nature, through the scriptures, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through living in community and relationship. If your understanding of God is the same today as it was the day you committed your life to Jesus, then you haven't progressed at all. That means that you're still living in that, that box of, of controlling God. That's a, kind of a religious box, which this group of people, they were living in, but what, what they were getting pushed back on was this change this is different. This is not something we're used to. And so in, in this regard, change should be viewed as a positive opportunity to understand more of God, but they look at it as a threat that somehow it's going to destroy the system that they have. Why is this so important? Because we constantly fight change. We don't like change, especially when it comes to things in the church or the things of God. We don't like when things change. In fact, we know that's true. I joke about this all the time. If we were to rearrange the seating in here again, it's amazing the first Sunday people come in here, they are lost. I don't know where my seat is. And you know what's funny is that you always will end up gravitating towards the back, towards the general area that you sat in before. I can come pretty, I can get like between 75 and 80% accurate attendance on a Sunday morning by where you guys sit. Why? Because we like, we like, and the thing, the bummer is when a visitor comes in and they sit in your seat, it's the worst, right? We don't like change. But when it comes to spiritual things, here's the danger. When you and I are resistant to change, that means we actually might be resisting God. Now, I know none of us outwardly would want to resist God, but we do that. And that's when we started this resurgence season. Remember, when I was praying, I said there's two things the Lord highlighted to me, two ways that the enemy will want to sidetrack or derail the whole process of resurgence, of really becoming the church that God wants us to be. And there's two ways. One of them was through a thing called apathy. And apathy makes this statement. I choose to do nothing. I'm going to do nothing just like I have before. I'm going to remain the same. The church can go through this whole resurgence things, but hey, I'm, I'm just going to hang out. I'm going to just be the same person I am. That's great for them, but not for me. What is that? That's apathy. But then there's something deeper that the enemy inspires in our life. It's resistance. And resistance, whereas, whereas apathy is more general, resistance is very specific. And resistance says this, I'm not going to do that. And it points out the very thing. What is that? That is a resistance to change of what God may be doing. Now, listen, we all have to test, is this really God? That's what was going on in Acts chapter 2, remember? They all, the, the big understanding of when the Holy Spirit came and people started to speak in languages that they didn't, they didn't know by, by birth or by training, the first conclusion people came to is what? They're drunk. They're out of their mind. They're crazy. And then Peter stands up and says, no, 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 they're not drunk. That's the testing. And so that's where the response should be, no, 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 listen. 
what you're resisting against is actually could be God at work. And that's why it's so important that we let God out of the box. We let God off of his mat. We let God define who he is instead of us giving him the system that he has to work within. So the first thing about religion is that it's about resisting change. Second thing, look at verses 11 and 12. It's about gaining power. So it says that in verse 11 and 12, it says they secretly instigated men. And then it says in verse 12, they stirred up the people. So what are they doing? These freedmen, which is interesting, they're called freedmen. They're not very free. They're free from slavery, but they're not free from religion. And so they're going behind the scenes and they're realizing the influence that their Judaism has is starting to erode because people are finding out about Jesus. And so they're going behind the scenes and they're, they're instigating things so that they can hang on to the perceived power, which in a nutshell is called control, that they have. Because they're starting to lose control. And if you lose control, then you lose the box. And if you lose the box, then you have no way to control God anymore. And this is what they're experiencing. They're losing that sense of control. And that's important because that's what we love. We love to be in control of something. We love to be able to define things. And so they're, they're starting to lose that. So what do they do? They're going behind the scenes to try to make sure that they control, control things and hang on to things. Here's the reality. When you follow Jesus, you're never in control. That's part of what it means to come to Jesus. You surrender. Jesus said you have to lose your life to find your life. That's one of the biggest issues that we have. It's like, I'll give him 65%, but I'm not going to give him this or this or this over here. There's a problem. Why? Because I still want to be in control. I'll surrender to God, but I still want to hold control. It doesn't work that way because eventually what happens is that you and I start thinking about control, which is power and influence over um, ourselves or other people around us. And if we go down that road, we end up going down the opposite road that God wants us to go down to. Listen to this exchange that Jesus has with his disciples in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 48. This is an issue of control that's going on here. It says, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. They're wanting to know who's going to be in control. In the kingdom of God, who gets to be the ones that call call in the shots? Who gets to control things? Who gets to feel safe because they're the ones who's in charge? Verse 47, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to him, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. What is Jesus saying? He's saying it isn't about control. It isn't about power. It isn't about influence. It's about surrendering. This is what is, how does a child respond to situations? Children are not usually worried as, about things that we are as adults. There's more humility in children. There's more accepting in children. There's more faith in children. There isn't this sense of I'm in control, I'm in charge, I have all the answers. And so this is, this is one of the things that the religion always does. It creates arrogance. And arrogance is the thing that gets in the way of what God wants to do. Because the more we define God, the more that we create a system to kind of keep him contained, honestly, the more we feel like we're God, which is a dangerous place to be because that is the temptation that's come to mankind. It's the temptation that was presented to Adam and Eve back in the garden at the beginning of time when they were given an option, in a sense, from the serpent. Remember the serpent's words to Eve about the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat? He asked a question, and he said this, did God really say? What was he saying? God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to know. He doesn't want you to have knowledge. Why? Because if you have knowledge like God, then you'll be just like him, and you won't need him anymore. That's the lie that the enemy gave. And so, hey, you got a chance to be God? Why don't you take it? 
So from, for all of mankind, for all of human history, what is religion? Religion is a way for us to control God, to make us feel like we're equal to God, so we're, we understand him. And that's why you and I have to be careful that we don't buy into that same mentality. And the more that you know Jesus, the more you're so grateful you're not God and he is. Because when we play God, we make a mess of the world. And that's part of why God comes to redeem through Jesus. And then there's a third thing that religion is. It's about distorting appearance. So it goes on, verse 13, it says they set up false witnesses. They said this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. And verse 14, for we have heard him say this of Jesus of Nazareth, will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. What's going on there? Oh man, they bring out Moses. It was like God and then Moses to the Jews. So they're saying he's actually changing things that Moses has said are to be true. Now, those, those are fighting words for the freedmen. They're, they're upset about this, and they're trying to stir this up in people. But what are they doing? They're taking the appearance, and they're changing it, and they're distorting what's really going on. Why? Because they're afraid they're going to lose that sense of control and God in a box. And so when you understand that in our lives, that means that there are things that you and I have to be honest with about ourselves, that there are things that, if we were honest, we don't really know if we know what is true in our lives. Let me explain what I mean by that. You and I have this idea that I know this is true, and we have reasons why we believe that's true. But part of what it is in following Jesus is we always have to go back to make sure what we believe is actually true and accurate. I think sometimes we believe distortions, and even if there's a chance that we might know it's a slight distortion, we still want to hang on to it. We don't really want the truth because the truth will threaten the system we've made up for our life. And that's why we're, as a church, going back to the book of Acts, again, to ask the question, do we get it right? We need to go back and make sure that we're getting right because you can just assume and you miss it. Let me explain so it comes clear, some clarity for this. So there are things that you and I believe about what Jesus said or what didn't, Jesus didn't say, and that's why sometimes it's really important just to go back and read the first four books of the New Testament, which is the Gospels. This is what I think Jesus said, but let me go read and see if he really did say that. I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've had people read through the Gospels and like, I never knew that Jesus said this, but he never said that because we come up with ideas that justify our belief system. Here's an example. I was sitting in a doctor's office a number of years ago with a guy, really friendly guy, and he started a conversation with me. I'm like, great. He was talking about what he does, and, and he said, well, what do you do? And I had just recently graduated from college. I was just getting involved in church ministry, and, and so, so he wanted to talk religion. I'm like, ooh, all right, wow, most people stay away from that, right? So he was going there, and he was explaining how his understanding, and he said, listen, he goes, I, I, I have an understanding that's that makes sense for all religions because it's based in all of all the religions tell you this. I said, what is that? He said, what? He said, there is one God, but he said, every religion ultimately leads to the same place. I said, okay, I've heard that before. I said, I don't know if I think that Christianity or that Jesus supports that, that assumption. Uh, I said, I think other religions do, but he said, yeah. He said, even Jesus in his own words said this. I said, now that's newsflash to me. You got to show me this. He goes, seriously, he is. He goes, listen, he goes, there in, in Matthew chapter 22, there's a story that Jesus tells about a banquet. There's the, the, the master invites people to the banquet, and people say, ah, I can't do this, but then he goes out into the, all the highways and byways and brings people in. And at the end of that, that parable, that story, Jesus makes a statement. He says, and this is what it says literally in, 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 a, in, in uh, our Bibles, is that Jesus said that, that many are uh, called, but few are chosen. He said, that's not what it really says. I said, it's not? He goes, no. I said, well, enlighten me again. He said, because, he said, in Latin, and then right away when he said that, I said, hmm, okay, 
the New Testament was written in Greek. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. So Latin came later. And so in Latin, actually, the phrase is this. Many are called, but few choose. So he said what Jesus is really saying is you can choose any path you want. You can choose Jesus. You can choose Islam. You can choose any faith. Ultimately, it's all going to lead back to the same God. And I sat there and I said, okay. I said, there's a problem with that. He goes, what is it? I said, the Bible was not written in Latin. It was translated from Greek into Latin, into English. He said, oh. <laughs> I said, you might want to go back to Greek and see what the sentence and the phrase actually says, which is what our translations say that it says. You don't choose. It's God's, God's the one that's making it happen. We don't say, ah, I'll take Jesus. I'll take Muhammad. I'll take Buddha. That's not what Jesus was saying. But he had created a whole belief system based on one verse that he thought he understood because he had studied the Latin, but not realizing even in Latin it doesn't say that either. But I want to say that because what is it that you have assumed is true about your understanding of Jesus that maybe it might be a good idea to go back and say, let's make sure we got that one right. Because what you could be living under is a distorted truth, which is what religion does. It distorts things. That's what these guys were trying to do, distort the truth to hang on to the power that they felt that they needed to hang on to. So that's what religion looks like. That's the freedman's perspective. But then there's Stephen and what his life looked like being filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, religion is always about modifying and controlling the outside, where spirit or following Jesus is about the transformation that God wants to bring in our life. It's a huge difference. Religion is all about the outside, where Jesus and God's spirit are always about starting on the inside and working their way out. So three things about what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is actively at work in your lives. Verse 8, it looks like divine power. So it says, verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So there's this power now that Stephen is experiencing that these guys don't understand. They have systems, they have rules, and now Stephen has power. What's going on is what we, what we know from the, the, the phrase signs and wonders. That means Stephen's probably praying for people, people are getting healed, people are getting set free. All these supernatural things are happening, and these guys are looking at that and going, okay, I don't have a system for that. I don't have a category for that. That can't be the way it works. And that's what you, if you've read through the Gospels, that's always the issue with the religious leaders. Jesus heals somebody, but shame on Jesus, he picked the wrong day of the week to heal somebody, right? He healed on the Sabbath, and you're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. And so they missed the miracle in front of them. Why? Because they were about this thing called procedures. Religion is always about procedures. It's always about the steps. It's always about making sure that what you're doing is done right. It never really has to do with, are you doing the right thing? It's just, are you doing it the right way? You can do the wrong thing the right way. That's scary. This is what they were doing. And that's why you and I have to realize there's a huge difference between what it means to live by the Spirit, follow Jesus with your life, and what religion produces. Religion produces a mindset that says there's systems and there's procedures you have to follow, and that's the most important thing, where God's Spirit comes along in power and says, no, I'm going to blow right through those systems and those procedures and demonstrate who I am and transform somebody in front of you. That's the difference. If you and I are really proficient at following procedures in our faith, sooner or later you're going to be proficient, and when you realize the very thing you're trying to accomplish, even though you follow all the procedures, it didn't get you there. But when you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and letting God be God and you not be God, amazing things will happen. Here, I want you to take a look at this short video. Two videos comparing the difference between procedures and power. 
Which one would you choose? Take a look. Pay close attention. I'm going to show you the proper stance in executing a bunt. Ready? Okay, now, the right foot is in the back, left foot is in the front. Bat is held high behind right ear. Hips are pushed forward. Put your weight on your right foot, flex your left knee. Place your left elbow toward left field and your right elbow in. Now, put your head back, hold your stomach in, and point your toes out. Okay, let's see you hit it. Sure. Ready? Yeah. That is absolutely clobbered. Good gosh, where is that going to land? Oh my, what a bomb from Aaron Judge. Testing the limits of Safeco Field with home run number 31. All right, I'm not a Yankee fan, but you got you to admit, Aaron Judge is an absolute beast. That guy can hit home runs almost 500 feet. It's crazy. But when you watch his swing compared to poor Mrs. Brady, which swing would you rather have? Which one looks easier? Which one looks more natural? Which one actually has power? Not the one that's based on procedure. And that's the difference between what religion offers and what it means to be living by the Spirit who lives inside of us because of what Jesus has done and living in that freedom and that power. I will choose the second one every single time. And that's what you and I have to understand about what God wants. Why does he want, us to, why does he want outside the box? Because he's got a life of power that you and I have yet to tap into because we're so consumed with procedures. Then verse 10, this is the, the, the second thing of what the Holy Spirit looks like as his, the Spirit works in our lives. That's divine wisdom. So it says of Stephen, again, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So Stephen had wisdom that the religious leaders, or excuse me, the freedmen did not have. Now here's important. What does religion put a high value on? Knowledge, wisdom, understanding. That's why religion always becomes kind of this academic pursuit for so many people. So these are a group of guys who have Judaism as their history. And so because of that, there's this sense of we have wisdom, we have understanding. And then Stephen comes along and has, ha has incredible wisdom that goes beyond their wisdom, which doesn't work for them. But divine wisdom, why is that so important? Because you and I are not smart enough to live the life God wants us to live. How many know that's true? We can pretend, we can try to figure it out, we can read all the books in the world, we can study as long as we want, but there's things that you and I are not going to be able to navigate apart from supernatural wisdom in our lives. Every single one of us has been in a situation probably once or a million times where we wish we had the wisdom to make the best decision, but we feel like we don't. Or how about if you're a follower of Jesus and you're in a situation where you know that somebody needs to know the truth, but you're afraid to open your mouth because you're afraid to say the wrong thing. We've all done that. So it's like, ah, I'm not going to talk to them because uh, I don't want to mess it up. God would rather have me not mess it up than say something and mess it up, right? No, God would rather have you open, his open your mouth and do what? Give you the divine wisdom that comes from a life that is guided by God's spirit who lives inside of you. Listen to what Jesus says, Luke chapter 21, verse 15. He says, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Stephen is the fulfillment of what Jesus was saying. That, listen, if God's spirit lives inside of you and you're in a situation where you feel like you're over your, in over your head, guess what? You're exactly where God wants you to be. 
because it's not based on your wisdom. It's not based on your religious understanding of Christianity to somehow make the situation better. It's God's wisdom in you. If we lack wisdom, what does James say we're supposed to do? James 1.5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. That's the wisdom that we need. Now, here's the thing I think we get confused about Jesus. We always say, and people say this all the time, oh, well, Jesus was God. That means that Jesus only did the things that he did because he was God. Nope. Jesus chose not to use his abilities and his capacities as God for his own purpose in the world. He submitted himself to live a life that is reflective of the life that we're supposed to live, empowered by the same spirit that lives in us. So everything that Jesus did in, the, in human flesh was a reflection of what a life looks like when you and I are surrendered to God's spirit, surrendered to God, and God's spirit works in us. That means in moments where Jesus encounters what exactly what Stephen encounters and throughout the Gospels, Jesus has, how many times does Jesus encounter religious leaders who have set up the whole scenario to trick him? They're trying to make him look bad. They're trying to get him to say something wrong so that people won't follow him anymore. And time and time again, you think, oh, this time they got him. This time they've got, there's no good answer for this. But what was Jesus doing? Suddenly in a moment, it's like, okay, I'm going to check into my God reality and then I'm going to give him the answer. No, through the power of the Spirit dwelling in Jesus as a human being, he comes up with these amazing answers that are some things that are accessible to us as well. Same Spirit is inside of us. Perfect example, one of the many examples, John chapter 8. So there's a woman who's caught in adultery. And these guys, it's a setup again. They catch her in the act of adultery, these religious leaders. Of course, the man never shows up, even though he's just as guilty as she is. They bring her before Jesus, and they go law on Jesus. They, they quote the law. Listen to what it says. This is in John 8, verse 4 and 5. It says, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? So what are you going to do, Jesus? This, I just want to put yourself in this situation. The law of Moses is Jesus did not come to change or violate the law. He came to fulfill the law. So he, he honors the law of Moses. So, okay, she's guilty. She's caught. There's, I mean, she's even admitting she's guilty. There's no way around this. She's got, in, immediately she has to be killed. That's what the law says. So you're thinking, what do you do? What would you do? Well, I don't, well, yeah, you know, she really is a law. She violated the law. So whoop, she's dead, right? That's what's going to happen. Or maybe, you know, ah, maybe not in this case. Let's, you know then Jesus is going to be in trouble. Why? Because now he's violating the law. Either way, you can't win, right? You, you, this is what they think. So what is Jesus' response to this? Beautiful. Verse 7. He says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, any, let's, let's be honest. None of us in this room would have come up with that. <laughs> Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. No one would have that much wisdom to make it not about her, but about them. Because the issue wasn't her. The issue was them. And so Jesus turns it and says, okay, let's take a look at you first. Your perfection. Let's see how perfect you are. And of course, one by one, I love as, as it goes on, it's one by one, the older ones first. It says in verse 9, it says that this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, only until Jesus left, which means the smarter ones first, the more mature ones realize they're not perfect. So then the beauty of the passage ends when Jesus looks at her and says, where'd they go? And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. What's beautiful about this, Jesus takes a death sentence and in a few moments he turns it into a resurrection. How in the world do you do that? 
oh, you got to be God. No, you have to have the spirit of God living inside of you. It's the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. It's the same spirit that lives in us. You and I have the capacity to do the same thing. But for many of us, we're so afraid to open our mouth, we never put ourselves in situations where we're in the deep end and need God's spirit to speak through us the wisdom that somebody needs in a situation. Stephen had wisdom that, that, that the freedman never could even touch, which was a result of God's spirit working inside of him. And then there's a final thing. The Holy Spirit, God's spirit living inside of us is about divine presence. Look at verse 15. Man, this is crazy. It says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. No, Stephen wasn't wearing makeup. He didn't have wings on. There was something so profound about his encounter and experience with God's spirit and who Jesus is in his life. It was reflected in his outward appearance. This is something that isn't just exclusive to, to Stephen. Listen, we, we were in this passage a number of, of months ago in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. It says the same thing of Peter and John. It says, and when they had so, uh, saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had what? Been with Jesus. Same thing is true Moses experienced as he encounters God in Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So there's this reality of this encounter with God that so changes somebody that everybody else around them sees the difference. They know that something's happened. Religion can never get that. It can only modify. It can't transform. But when we've had an encounter with Jesus and his spirit lives inside of us because Jesus died on the cross and we admit our brokenness and our sin and we surrender our life to him, then God's spirit comes in and lives inside of us and then begins this process of transformation and change that only God can do. That's what, why it's the difference between religion and spirit is religion is a dead end where the spirit brings life and change in our lives and, and transformation. And if you and I don't understand that, that means that we're living in this religious system about procedures and trying to be the best we can, but it's never good enough because we're never perfect. And then Jesus comes along and says, I will take your imperfection, and through the cross, I will exchange my perfection for your imperfection so that you're right with God. That's what happened on the cross. So how does that, what does that look like in our lives? It comes down to transformation. The Spirit of God living inside human beings is the only thing in the world that can change somebody. The only thing. Everything else is modification because transformation comes from the inside out and it, and it shapes and changes our life. So, example, I have a good friend who didn't start out as a good friend, but we didn't know each other real well. When I was in college, um, preparing to, to go and, and to be involved in ministry, at the school is that just like every other high school or college, there were cliques. You know, everybody kind of gravitates to their groups for various reasons. And so, in my, in my school, everybody kind of went to certain groups. So, like, all the athletes kind of hung out with the athletes. All the people who were really cool and hip and everything, they hung out with each other. And then they had, like, in my, I'll be honest, I was kind of more of an academic when I was in college, so I hung out with the geeks. I'll just be honest. And I don't know how Kim let me, said yes to going on a date with me with this geek. But, but then there was this other group everybody knew. And they were the group that you looked at and you just asked the question, why in the world are you here? Seriously, you're failing every class. You've broken every rule there is in the dorms. You've broken curfew. You've broken, I mean, you're, you're, you're barely going to survive your first year. You're spending money to do this. And literally, it's like, why are you here? 
I mean, rebellious at every point. You're like, there's no way that, and I'll just be honest, this is my thought. There's no way God could use that person. And so I remember graduating and everybody kind of goes their way. And probably five or six years later, I, I get this general kind of email of some things that are going on with churches in our, in our country and, and through our denomination. And this, one of the guys who was a part of that group, his name comes up in this email. In fact, he and his wife are in the process of planting a church in uh, Madison, Wisconsin to reach college students at the University of Wisconsin. And I'm like, no. <laughs> uh -uh. It's a typo. There may be two guys that have the same name. That's what I'm thinking. It can't be this guy. I don't even think this guy even really finished college. There's no way. And so, and then, not more than a few days later, I get an email from him. He said, hey, I just wanted you to be praying for us. This is what we're doing. This is what God's been doing in our life. And I'm like, that's him. That's the same guy. I'm like, this is no, it's like, this is a joke. Seriously, that, I'm like, there's no way this guy can be the same guy. So they planted a church, and actually, it was really cool. They started a business that was a way of reaching students that actually became a church. It was this great thing that was going on, reaching students on, on campus there. But then after about five or six years, I get another email and another conversation. I ran to him as a conference. He said, listen, God has been so moving on our lives that he's calling us to do something different. I'm like, different? What are you going to do now? He goes, we really feel like God's calling us to move to Russia to be missionaries. And again, I'm like, no, this is a joke. This can't be the same guy. This is a guy who couldn't even show up to class on time. And now he wants to move to Russia, which is one of the hardest mission fields in the world. And sure enough, they moved. And now I get emails of them with big like thick jackets and deep layers and it's freezing because it's not below freezing it's below zero it's really cold and but they're living in russia with their kids and god is using them what did he have what happened to this guy the same spirit that was in jesus lives in my friend that transformed what i perceived to be a loser into somebody who reached college students on one of the most secular campuses in the country and now is reaching people in one of the hardest areas to reach people in the world. How does that happen? Because he has a really good belief system? Because he has great religion? No, because he's been transformed by God's spirit living inside of him. That's the hope of the world. That's the hope for us, is that we don't have to change ourselves or modify ourselves. We surrender and let God do the transforming work in us. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come and, and join me. We're going to hit, uh, sing one last song together. But before we, we do that, I, I want to give you a picture, an image of what I believe what God is really wanting for us this morning. One of the things that many of you know we've mentioned before, that before our first service each Sunday, those who are a part of the service, and, and anyone's welcome to come, we, from 8.30 to about 8, right, 15, about 8.30, we pray collectively just around the room and just praying, God, what are you saying for today? We've done our homework, we've studied the scriptures, we're preparing worship, but God, is there something you really want to say today that we have yet to really hear? We want to make sure we don't miss that. And so we, we come together up front and we say, what is God saying? And we listen collectively because God speaks to more than just the pastor. Yes? Because the same spirit that's in the pastor is the same spirit that is in people who've said yes to Jesus, and God speaks to us. So we listen. And there are a number of things that were shared this morning, but one of the things that a number of us felt was that God wants to bring freedom not freed men, like in the passage, but freedom. And that sense of liberation to our lives, which means the things that define us, the things that hold us back, the things that limit us, even the religious beliefs that we have that keep us kind of away from God, God wants to liberate us from those things. He wants to set us free. 
Because there's something that, that you and I don't realize about the way religion works in our life. Religion is not just a man-made creation. It's inspired by somebody who's the enemy of our soul. If the enemy can get us to believe that we have a religious system that is airtight and solid and is exactly what God wants, but there's no room for God to ever expand outside of that, and we're convinced of that, then he's won. Because we're convinced that we've got it. But then God comes along and continues to push back on our boxes and our lists and our systems and our definition of him and says, listen, let me reveal myself through my word and through the power of the spirit in your life so that you can be free. For some today, God's calling you to let go of some things that have, you've held on to. And it's identities that you've placed on yourself from your sin or your belief system. That God doesn't want to make you a Christian. You know that? God's not in the business of making Christians. He's in the business of connecting you to him through Jesus. And yeah, the world calls you a Christian. But that's something that we've, that's a label that we've put on ourselves. But let me just give you this picture of what God wants to bring as far as freedom. I've talked about this movie a number of times. It's an old movie. It's a pretty obscure movie called Lady Hawk. And it's, it's kind of this fantasy film, but it's a love film based on two people that loved each other, but they could never be together. Because there was this evil bishop who cast a spell over both of them so that they would be, this is the phrase, they, they were forever together but eternally apart. And the way they were separated and they were together is that during the day she was a hawk and at night she turned into a woman. The man, during the day, he was a man, but at night he would turn into a wolf. So they would always be together, but they could never be human at the same time. They were always just at sun, sunrise and sunset. They were just passing each other, and they could never be together. And so they figured out a way to, to finally break the curse that the bishop had put on them, that there was a, an eclipse that would give the appearance that it was night and day at the same time. So this kind of climactic scene in this movie, it's Michelle Pfeiffer in one of her early roles. She, she comes before this bishop in this huge cathedral, and she's trembling, and she's crying because this man has destroyed her life. She holds out in front of him her hand with a closed fist, and she slowly opens her hand and to reveal in her hand was two pieces of leather. One was the hood that went over her during the day when she was a hawk, and also there was a leather strap that was in her hand that was tied to her legs to keep her bound so that she couldn't fly away. And those two things she holds out in her hand before the bishop who had bound her to those things. And she turns her hand over and those things hit the ground. I'll tell you, every time I've seen that scene, it's so powerful because she's declaring her freedom. She's saying to this, this bishop, you no longer have power over my life. You don't get to dictate what I am and who my, what my identity is. Why? Because this is broken in this moment. And there's an enemy of our souls that wants us to hang on to identities of what we think Christianity is or we think faith is or we think religion is. And God is wanting to set us free from that today. But you and I have to surrender that. You have to surrender to the most trustworthy person. And that's God himself. Could you trust God that maybe there's more to him than you've given him credit for? Maybe there's something outside the box that he wants to reveal you, to you today, but the only way you're going to experience that is if you let it go and you let God define for you who he is. I love the song we're going to go into. We sang it earlier, but we're going to talk about who God says that I am. I am who you say I am. I am not who I say I am. And God, you are who you say you are, not who I say you are. That's God's definition. God defines us. God defines himself so that we can live in spirit and not live in religion. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? I pray right now 
for each person here that you would bring freedom in this place. In fact, just right now with, with everyone's eyes are closed right now, I want to ask those that maybe you're here and you, you've, you've sensed that maybe there's more to God than you realized. Maybe even there's some resistance inside of you that's pushing back and you think, yeah, I, I kind of got this thing on God, I understand, and so we got this agreement. But, but maybe even today you feel, you're feeling something more than just your knowledge or your wisdom or your, your, your belief system. You're, you're feeling pushed in on maybe there's more to God that you haven't yet to experience in your life. And that's because God wants to go deeper into your life. God wants to not only bring change in your life, he wants to get into your soul and bring transformation. And the only way he can do that is if you're willing to surrender your life to him. You're willing to give over all of your failed attempts at trying to make your life into be the things that you think it's supposed to be, all of your failed attempts at trying to get a way to understand God so you can kind of keep him in a box so he doesn't infringe on the life that you want to live. But today he's, he's stepping outside of that and he's pushing in and you feel it right now. You know you're feeling it because that's God's spirit who's working on you right now and he's, he's calling you to make a response. And the reason you can respond to Jesus is because of all the points of failure in your life have been paid for already. The things that keep you from God, the things that keep you stuck where you're at and never being able to get traction in your life, those are things that the Bible calls sin. And Jesus, when he came 2,000 years ago, he, he, he was willing to take his perfect life, never sinned at all in his life, and go to a cross and die for one reason, to take your sin and your failure and put it on his, himself. He added it to his account. He took on our debt. And then in exchange, he sets us free and he gives us his perfection. And he says, you experience this when you surrender your life to me. And if that's you today and you know, you know what? I need to surrender my belief system. I need to surrender my life. I need to surrender my sin. I need Jesus to forgive me and cleanse me and make me right. And if that's you right now, I'm gonna ask you right where you're at. When I finish my prayer, I'm gonna ask you, you would just pray and you would say, because God is present by spirit. He hears your words that you would say to Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I give my life to you today and, and choose to not keep living the same life I'm living, but allow you to define for me who you are and who I'm supposed to be. So Lord Jesus, in these moments, for each one of us, Lord, maybe it's for the first time that someone would make a commitment to you. Maybe for others, Lord, we're coming back to a place of surrendering again to you. That as we surrender and we sing, Lord, that we would submit to the fact that you want us to be your children, that we are children of God, we are embraced by you, but Lord, that comes through surrendering to you, Jesus embracing your death on the cross, and then believing that your resurrection will come someday so that each one of us do not, does not have to fear death, but Lord, we have the confidence that we have life that lasts forever because you've taken care of sin that would lead to death, but now we have life through you. So Jesus, would you come and would you bring transformation in each one of our lives by your spirit who lives inside of us?